there's no reason why the public shouldn't be seeing the same reports and evidence that the advisory committees are seeing. And Welcome to this BMJ COVID podcast. I'm Fee Godley, Editor-in-Chief of the BMJ, recording this on Tuesday, 3rd November, as countries across Europe report a surge in COVID cases and deaths, and many, including England, abandon local restrictions and go back into national lockdown. Today on the line, I have our three regular contributors, starting with Nizreen. Hi, I'm Nisreen Alwan, Associate Professor in Public Health and Honorary Consultant Public Health in Southampton. And Matt Morgan. Hi, my name is Matt Morgan. I'm an intensive care consultant based in Cardiff and BMJ columnist. And Helen Salisbury. Hi, I'm Helen Salisbury. I'm a GP in Oxford. And we have our expert guest this week, Andrew Hayward. Andrew, hello. Hi there. I'm Andrew Hayward. I'm a Professor of Infectious Disease Epidemiology and Inclusion Health at UCL. Uh, So that really means I focus both on infection and social exclusion type research. I'm a member of the uh, NERVTAG committee, that's the New and Emerging Respiratory Virus Threats Advisory Group, and much of my career has been devoted to studying um, the epidemiology of respiratory viruses. Thanks so much, Andrew. Well, could we start then with a question about uh, this second wave of national lockdowns around Europe? And obviously, in particular, we're thinking about the one that England is about to go into in a couple of days' time. What do you consider this is expected to achieve and and will it work? Well, I think at the moment we've we've reached a level where we have very high levels of COVID in the population, uh, around about 1% of us infected with COVID. That's half a million people at any at any point in time um, and that level of infection is really extraordinarily dangerous not only because of the, the level of deaths that that will produce in three weeks time even if it stayed at the same level but because of the potential for that to then very rapidly um, increase to uh, exponentially high levels of infection and associated mortality. And I think the, the clear aim of the lockdown is it's really the fastest way that we have of reducing this infection uh, and hope to prevent that, that peak where the hospitals are going to find it very, very difficult to cope, um, both with COVID cases and with other diseases. And, and do you think it, uh, what would you say if the, the, the top thing it will achieve, it's only four weeks and, you know, how will we know if it's actually had the effect we want it to have? Well, I think the, obviously the top thing that it achieves is it reduces interaction between people across all different fields. Um, so it, it reduces it um, both through the sort of social type of fields, but also um, within workplaces and within retail and within public transport. And so it's combining all of those things together that allows um, it to have, if you like, a, a more of a synergistic effect. So each of those things on their own contribute a small part to transmission. But when you move them all together, that can have a, a potentially a much bigger effect. And we certainly saw in the, the first wave of the pandemic that the lockdown was, in fact, very successful in curtailing the infection, albeit that it took quite a long time. 
Um, I think the, the amount of time that it takes is, is really quite uncertain. Um, and, uh, and, and obviously the, the, the greater the degree of separation between people, the more that that, that, that would be the case. I mean, sometimes you, like, I, th- I think it's worth thinking of just the thought experiment, which is clearly entirely unrealistic. But if, for example, the whole world were able to be socially isolated at the same time for two or three weeks uh, or even less than that, then you might even stamp out the thing completely. So we're never going to do that. But that's the sort of concept. Uh, it's the more that that separation can happen, the, the, the faster it will come down. Thanks, Andrew. Nizreen. Thanks, Andrew. I suppose uh, you're just talking about the lockdown and its effect and one big elephant in the room, really, which is uh, is the school. That's the main difference from the first lockdown schools, colleges and obviously um, universities to some degree. Um, and I just wanted to and we know that the prevalence of infection um, um, is similar, according to the react finding the react study findings for example in in children uh, perhaps a bit more in secondary school children i just wanted to hear your view about this and and also the other thing to say is we're not there doesn't seem to be any extra measures taken at school um during this period i i mean that does concern me um certainly within schools it's not really been possible to institute um social distancing to the extent that would meaningfully impact on on transmission because schools are just not, they don't have the physical um, resources and spaces to allow that to to happen. So I think um, transmission is going on very effectively within schools, um, particularly secondary schools. Uh, And we also know that um, the, the children will bring COVID back into their households and, and that they may often be the, you know, the first people to be infected within a household. Um, and, and so I think the other thing that concerns me is that what that does is essentially it connects many, many households together. Um, so this idea of sort of separating individuals extends to sort of separating households. And if you've got essentially children as a, as a bridge, for infection across those households, it, it will quite clearly slow down the success of um, any lockdown. Um, I, th- I think it's it's still probably possible to get the R below one um, with children going to school, um, probably, uh, but it will take longer to do that. Thanks, Andrew. I've been reading in a fascinating way about the Collaborative Centre for Inclusion Health that you started. And I think there's some really important words in there, collaboration and inclusion. Uh, And of course, you've also been heavily involved in encouraging compliance with measures for infection such as TB, including uh, video compliance of taking medications. I guess one critical way that this lockdown will or will not be successful is with collaboration, inclusion and compliance. Um, So are there lessons that you've learnt through that past experience? You know, how do we get people on board to do the things that we know help, especially when trust now in the public feels to be at a fractured position? Well, I think trust is really vital, isn't it? And, And I think the, you know, the things that are going to make this work are people believing in what they need to do in order to 
curtailed this virus and, and, and believing, if you like, in the potential severity of it. Um, and I, I think it could have been much more of a dialogue, if you like, with communities. Uh, and I think this is probably particularly relevant to um, communities from poorer areas of the country and um, ethnic minority communities, um, where um, often the, the messages that are sort of coming down from above are, are, are not well explained or, or culturally relevant or discussed or really thinking through how you mitigate the impact of those um, really quite severe restrictions, whether that be, you know, isolating um, following symptoms when you have, um, you know, w when you're on the breadline anyway, um, is, is a really difficult thing to do. And I think it was a big mistake that we didn't consider those uh, issues early enough and bring people along. And I think that's, to a large extent, what has happened in Sweden uh, is, although they haven't introduced draconian restrictions so much, what they have had is a much clearer dialogue with the population about, you know, why this is important and, and, and a much sort of greater consistency of, of people, if you like, voluntarily following rules. Of course, it's helped by the fact that that country is also substantially less uh, has substantially less population density um, than we do as well. But, but nevertheless, that message of bringing people with you is important. I mean, I'm glad you brought up the Centre for Inclusion Health because the other thing that we've done a lot in this pandemic is, is the response in the homeless um, population. Um, and, and I think that's one area where the government did really well in the first round um, in terms of it, it's, it's everyone in um, campaign what, what that really did is allow us to shut all of these communal night shelters um, where people are sleeping in dormitories and spreading infection uh, like wildfire, potentially. And we've seen from around the world that where countries didn't do that, we've had massive outbreaks, 60% uh, of homeless people infected, many hundreds of deaths, whereas we prevented that in this round. Unfortunately, in this second round, we're still, uh, it's looking like night shelters will reopen and cold weather whether shelters will reopen unless they make an announcement very soon um, that everyone should come in again. Yeah, just one brief point. You know, I, I watched the presentation from the Prime Minister and others, and it was amazing for an epidemiologist, a data scientist. You know, there were graphs everywhere. There were people asking for next slide, please. Uh, I nearly bought uh, three slide advances, actually, and sent them to Downing Street that night. But I think the the way to get across that complex information, that may have been great for epidemiologists and for data scientists, but for people who are not in that sector, you know, that 20 minutes was extraordinarily complex. And yes, there was a take-home message at the end, but I, I do think that getting those messages across in a simple, impactful, tangible way is not with 10 epidemiological graphs. It's a bit I, like in when, you know, those shampoo adverts where they say, and you know, and here's the science, and they just give you some sort of gobbledygook, and everyone thinks, oh, well, this shampoo must work because there's scientists behind it. I, I absolutely agree, Matt. It seemed... Sadly, you know, a lot of huge amount of work, but but in terms of the impact on the people who needed to understand it, really, really not going to work. I mean, I think there's a, there's a lot that can be done. I, I think people are not using sort of appropriate metaphors 
enough. And, and I think actually some of these metaphors are quite useful. I, I think in particular things like a forest fire is a, is a really good metaphor for it because we, you know, we know that that sort of starts off small and then, you know, it accelerates. Um, and, 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 and the longer you leave it, um, the more difficult it is to control. And so I think some of the, some of the sort of metaphors like that can be, can be useful. Uh, and actually, you know, being copyrighted by Wales yeah. now as a fun break. So um, Boris will have to ask Mark Drake <laughs> for permission. But, but again, that you know that that far break um, metaphor is is more accurate than circuit break. Really, you know, circuit break sort of implies you know it's like a switch and you can turn it on and off. Um, where whereas all, all we can really do is sort of suppress it for a while um, and. Uh, and, and try to avoid these massive peaks. And that's, you know, that's the terrible thing about these um, respiratory infections and the, the nature of the exponential growth in infections. This wouldn't be so bad if we had, you know, if, if you have the same number of cases spread evenly over a year, um, we could cope with that. That, that wouldn't be such a, such a problem. Of course, it would still cause a lot of deaths, but it would have far less, less impact on other aspects of society and, and the other healthcare that we can provide. But when all of those deaths are concentrated into a period of two or three months, it just um, is devastating. I, I'm really interested in what you're saying about the communication because um, it was clearly very poor. I came across an interesting typo the other day when somebody had meant to write threats but wrote treats instead. They just missed out the H. Um, but it made me think about, about sticks and carrots and what's the way to help people to do the things that you, you really need them to do. Um, and I, I did read, I don't know whether it's changed now, but I read that if you are um, told to self-isolate via the app, there is no support to do so. And it made me wonder how on earth most people, if they have a notification, if they've even downloaded the app in the first place, but you get a notification, um, how could you possibly isolate unless you had quite a lot of resources? That's, that's actually really, really hard. And, and I'm kind yeah. of very much in two minds of, about there's clearly we need to be supporting people. But I also think there are a surprising number of people who don't get how dangerous a situation we're in. Um, and I think one needs to have a kind of, international view and look at what's happening in some other countries uh, there's the there's a kind of the the images from the first wave of people lying in hospital corridors there's the there's the stuff now that's coming from from Belgium particularly where so many of their hospital workforce is now infected they're actually having to ask people staff who are positive for coronavirus but are not particularly unwell to come and look after patients got coronavirus because they haven't got enough other staff and then and it's that reignition now and, and mm. the, the, the 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 um recurrence of the discussions that we were having at the beginning of the first wave about how do you make ethical decisions about who to treat and i, I find that's a really scary place to get to it amazes me how quickly we seem to have forgotten just how horrific the first wave was um, just how, you know, how many people were dying without their loved ones there and dying of, you know, this is not a comfortable, easy, easy death from what I understand. I've not been on the, the front line, but it, it's, 
you know, that, that dying alone thing's awful. The decisions that were being made, and rightly or wrongly, I think there, there, was, there was rationing um, of um, the uh, in, intensive care, particularly when it comes to nursing homes. And it was, um, there were probably many people dying in nursing homes who could have been helped um, from coming into hospital. And so those sorts of difficult decisions, when you get up to the, the levels of infection that we saw in the first wave, are very, very apparent. And the, and the likelihood is that we're going to go above that first wave, um, even with these restrictions. And so, you know, I think this is, um, pe people don't have that consciousness of how really bad this can be. This was 40,000, 50,000 deaths within the first wave. Normally, Yes, we do get deaths from respiratory infections over the winter, but, you know, in a bad winter, it would be, maybe be 15,000 for influenza. Um, so this is, and this was in the spring. Um, so at the end of the time period when respiratory infections um, usually circulate. So I, I do have major concerns about what this winter is going to look like. Ms. Rain. Yes, I absolutely agree with everything that's said. I think I think in public health, it really pains me to see how there's been a massive failure in communicating the principle of prevention, you know, talking about fires, you know, the, the bit about, you know, um, success will always look like overreacting because you've prevented, um, you know, deaths and, 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 and ill health. And, and that should have been drilled in right from the start into public consciousness, you know. So I think I think it's really hard now at this stage um, you know, after, you know, 10 months or so to, to try and drill this in. So if, when we're talking about where we should have locked down um, in September, um, you know, the, the public, a big proportion of the public are not prepared for that sort of messaging because they'll be saying, that, that's, that's what they're saying, the hospitals are empty, we're fine, you know, what, why are you doing this? Because that principle of prevention wasn't, wasn't communicated. Well, I think that's right. And just, and, you know, we, we sort of, kind of rely, if you like, on an intrinsic understanding of what these sort of epidemic curves mean. Um, and, you know, when I look at an epidemic curve, I can, you know, I, I basically see this exponential thing, where, whereas I think it's far more abstract in many other people's minds, and, and, it, and it, it doesn't really bring it home, and we're not using simple analogies. I mean, the, the other analogy I quite like to use is, you know, levels of seasonal coronavirus, and this transmits in very similar ways to seasonal coronavirus, are very similar to levels of flu um, in the winter. And in, and in the winter, we have about, on an average winter, we might get 15% of the population infected with flu. Um, and, and so maybe it's a similar proportion for, for seasonal coronavirus um, each year. Now, given that we only had 5% of the population infected in the first wave, and that led to 40 to 50,000 deaths, then you can, you can automatically see that, okay, well, this has really the potential to lead to over 100,000 deaths um, without much of a stretch of the imagination. Now, of course, we're not in the same place as we were there in terms of we have, you know, a lot more things going on in society in terms of social distancing, that, which is why it's not taking off as quickly um, as before. But nevertheless, whether it's doubling every week or whether it's doubling every two weeks, it's still heading to the same place, um, just in a, you know, in a slightly slower way. Um, and I think the, the key thing is that one or two weeks can make all the difference. 
um, to whether this is a, a really big epidemic or a, or a moderate-sized one. Uh, and, I, and I think probably in the, in the first wave, it would be fair to say that in, you know, probably in London, we shut down a fortnight too late and in the rest of the country, maybe a week too late, um, something like that. But, but, but these are very fine differences, which was why everybody was so insistent, really, that the best thing to do would have been to have had a much, much earlier um, intervention that could have been less. Uh, and, and again, I was using the analogy at the time that, you know, you only have to think it's, it's much, much easier to put out a small fire than it is a big one. Helen? Um, I'm also interested in what, what's different between the last time and this time. Um, and there, were, there was a sense last time, there was a consensus. This is a crisis. We all need to act together. And that consensus seems to have been lost and part of it, I think, is the setting up of um, a, maybe a slightly false debate or rather a de debate between most serious scientists and some outliers and the, the outliers who are talking now about um, herd immunity and the need to rescue the economy rather than concentrate on COVID when most of us know that those things are so intricately um, in, intertwined that we can't do one without the other. And I'm just wondering a little bit about, about media's um, responsibility for presenting this as a scientific debate. There are two sides, which reminds me very much of, you know, way back the tobacco industry's presentation about smoking harms. Our, our well scientists don't agree because here's another country view. Or climate change, climate change denial, the setting up of a false argument. And I just wonder whether that there's been a, a problem with presenting the you know, Great Barrington Declaration type stuff, which I think you'd agree there's a probably really um, a very much a minority view and, and sometimes giving that equal airtime as the, the, the rest of the scientific consensus, which is saying, although we hate lockdown, we don't have a choice. Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree. And I think in, you know, in, in an effort to appear impartial, then, you know, you, you sort of need to give both views an airing. Um, but whether you need to give them the same weight, um, I don't know. Um, I mean, I, I was listening to the radio this morning and the, um, so, you know, for example, Carl Hennigan and um, um, would, would be one of the people um, who's arguing in other directions. Uh, and, you know, when you listen to it, it, it sounds very credible. <laughs> um, and then when you listen to someone else, that sounds credible as well. So who's to, you know, so how, how are the general public supposed to interpret this? But the fact is that, you know, the, the government have put together a, a group of people with knowledge and long-term experience, many of whom have devoted their lives to understanding how these infections work. And they don't just think of the death side of it. They are in their heads trying to balance this with the economic impacts. But I think it's, it's very much, it's not this false dichotomy. Um, the countries that have had the least economic impact are the ones that went in hard and fast. Um, and, and their economies are functioning more or less as normal. 
um, and ours is not going to be for a long time. Could I ask you, Andrew, uh, we interviewed Chris Whitty last week, and um, one of the things I think is very interesting about the current situation is this apparently pure division between the science and the implementation, um, which in my mind isn't really what public health is about. Public health is quite a sort of roll your sleeves up and get, get, get in there. Um, and I wondered if you could just tell us a bit about how the conversations that, that your party to, I mean, it, through SAGE, through your, your, your um, involvement in the advisory committees, um, how they happen and who you feel is in charge when it comes to implementation, because it seems to me that you can't simply say, this is what the science says and stop there. It seems to me some, someone has to then take that into an implementation framework, you know, the difficulties we're having with test and trace and the problems of people not being able to isolate, all those you know, nitty gritty implementation things. How does that, how does that work? Yeah, I mean, I think, I, I think that is something that has frustrated me. And just to be cl clear, I'm not, I'm not a member of SAGE, although I have attended some meetings when I've had papers to present. I'm a, I'm a member of NERVTAG. And in a sense, the, the remit of NERVTAG is to advise on specific scientific questions but not really to give policy advice. Um, and, and to me, that, that has been a frustration, uh, if you like. As somebody who's trained and brought up as a public health person, I want to be able to, you know, sort of carry through that evidence into, into clear advice and recommendations, but that's not the way that the committees have really been established. Um, I think I've also found in the beginning of this, it, really quite difficult to know who it is who is making the decisions um, and I think um, regrettably I think Public Health England was um, really sidelined um, a lot um, early on uh, and so you know I, I wasn't really you know close enough to Public Health England to, to see what was being recommended but it, it, it was remarkably quickly that it appeared that many of its functions um, were being taken over by other organizations and uh, and I'm not sure what what level of influence it had on decision making um, and I think that's that's the sort of to my mind a lot of these decisions should have been really led by public health public health England um, with um, government following now of course, it, the, the decisions, though, were so hard to contemplate. I remember very distinctly at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, reanalyzing some of the data that we had from our community surveys and looking at risk factors for respiratory infection and seeing that, you know, the more that you go to the shops, the more that you go to pubs, the more that you go to church, all of these things affect um, your risk of getting of getting a respiratory infection and this realization coming upon me that, you know, this is going to be really devastating in terms of the, if we're going to control this, we're going to need to take devastating measures. Uh, I'm drifting away from your question of the frame. No, no, you're not. I mean, I can see, I, I, I think that that reflects the frustration that many of us will have felt um, and not quite knowing where the decisions are being made and this distinction between the science and the policy and the politics um, and, and you know, in, in a way, I mean, Chris Whitty talked about collective leadership in, in his interview with us 
and um, wanting there to be collective leadership, which I think is a very fine ideal. And I'm sure he's right that there are leaders at every level in, in this process. But somehow, um, you know, I, I, I don't love hierarchies, but somehow I wanted to feel that someone in charge. And I, it doesn't feel like that um, at the moment. Well, it also feels very odd that, you know, members of the advisory committees, they, they, they find out what the policies are going to be on the news, same as everybody else. And, and very often they're quite different from what they've recommended. If the scientific advice is not uh, being followed or if the policy decision is, is contradictory to the scientific advice, do you think it's beneficial, yeah. it's useful for the scientists to um, communicate that to the public? Uh, because there's been a debate about this, you know, that means people don't trust the science and, and you know, don't trust the whole process, don't follow the rules, but actually, it, it, I mean, I certainly feel it's important to, to communicate that. What's your view about this? I think it is important to do so. I, it's not a comfortable place to be, to be speaking openly about those decisions and the fact that you think the wrong decisions have been made. Um, and, um, but I think, and, and also you have to tread a, a careful line because, you know, some of the terms of being on these committees is that you're not really supposed to discuss um, the discussions that you've had at the committees, outside of the committees, and, you know, they get reported in minutes, but often like not until too late to have an influence on things. Um, but I do think it's important for scientists to talk about what they think should happen. Um, and, um, and so I try to do that. And I think a number of scientists have done that. I, I think it, it's also, I, I've struggled as to whether, you know, one, whether those, it, it's hard to do that without being critical, if you see what I mean. So by, by the nature of saying that, that you think the decision could have been different and it would have been better if it has, then you are being critical. And then that, that, that gets taken up as, you know, being politically motivated. And, you know, it's not really. I'd be saying these, the same things, what, whatever the government was that was making these decisions, if they, were, if they were making what I thought the wrong decisions. And again, I'm, you know, I'm just, I also always make it clear that I'm speaking on my own behalf, if you see what I mean. So, you know, I'm just a voice amongst many. Helen. I mean, I just think that the, the benefit of a bit more transparency about what the advice is to government might actually keep or, or maybe make the government a little bit more honest. Because if it was clear to everybody what they had been advised, then they would have to explain their reasoning about why they've decided to do something different. I mean, it is their job to decide, but we should have access to the facts that inform those decisions so that we can judge them. Uh, I think, think the judgments would be very generous um, if we had all that information at our fingertips. But there is this kind of feeling about what, why, are they, why are they deciding these things? Because it just, to, to, to many of us as the general public, doesn't really make any sense. And you wonder what are the, what else is pushing their buttons? What is making them do the things that they're doing? Yeah, and I think that the culture's sort of changing a bit on that at the beginning of the pandemic, then, you know, then none of the minutes were made available uh, at all. And it wasn't usual for, you know, NerveTag always made its minutes available, Sage didn't. And, 
there were strong arguments that we needed more openness and, you know, we needed to be able to, there's no reason why the public shouldn't be seeing the same reports and evidence that the advisory committees are seeing. And, and I think that brings us back to the sort of earlier on in the conversation where we're sort of saying, you know, we need to bring people along with us. People need to, to be able to understand that, yeah, the science isn't, isn't black and white. Um, and, and there are some levels of judgment, uh, but these are the discussions that are going on. I really like the, the model, if you like, of independent sage where they actually, you know, make those, discussions openly available i'm not sure how many people watch them but but you know it's a good principle it's almost got some analogies to the publishing industry in medicine in many ways you know we've moved from closed publishing perhaps to more open access publishing perhaps the pre-print servers where you can assess the data on which things are based on before and even of course in the genetics literature where the data itself has to be provided for others to analyze. Um, now, that may open a whole new can of worms where we get multiple versions of the Great Barrington Declaration of Reanalysis, but at least it would put the data in one place and the decisions uh, in another. And I guess just one final point, it, it feels we've talked about public trust and about compliance and, and following with guidance. I think it's unfortunate this virus's metrics are almost tuned to be dangerous enough to be a disaster, but not quite dangerous enough to be like the bubonic plague or polio, where everybody knows someone who was ill or there were swathes in the community. And so that kind of fosters this, this questioning of things. And it's also a bit like speeding or texting while driving. We know it's an awful idea. We know it kills people. Um, but linking that action to the outcome is really hard. And so when people think, oh, I've broken the rules, it doesn't really matter, what A doesn't lead to B in their mind, although epidemiologically it clearly does. So it's almost like the dials of this virus are tuned to a really unfortunate spot. And I think that's the difficult thing because, you know, from an individual perspective, if you're being, you know, if you're being honest with fit, young, healthy people, then, you know, the risk to them is extremely low. Um, and so you are asking people to take actions that are primarily to protect others and, uh, and are, you know, primarily to protect the clinically vulnerable and particularly the elderly. Um, and, so that's that's a that's a big ask, I think. One of the things that I feel doesn't get mentioned enough in these discussions about why we're locking down is is the hope that this could allow the government to get its test trace, uh, contact tracing in particular, and isolation sort of models in, in into something that actually functions, which I think most people are saying doesn't work at the moment. Andrew, what do you feel, or, or others, what do you feel about the possibility that the government might actually do this in this precious four weeks that we're giving ourselves in England? Well, I mean, I think the a lot of people have seen, and it's been sold as such, as, you know, the thing that's going to allow us to get back to normal. Um, and I think it really doesn't quite work like that. I mean, certainly... A, at the moment, it's so far off achieving that aim um, that, um, that that you worry whether it's worth the money at all. Um, so, you know, the key 
part of test and trace is to get contacts into isolation and to get them into isolation really early um, in the course of their contact. So ideally, you'd want them to be isolating, say, um, within 48, 72 hours of having been uh, in, in contact with somebody. Um, but that's, that's taking a lot, lot longer than that. And also, um, we've got, we got this difficult situation where a high proportion of people are asymptomatic. A high proportion of those who are, who are symptomatic are not seeking testing and never really will because, you know, they, they don't believe that they have COVID because they have an infection that feels to them no different from a normal common cold. Um, and, uh, and, and so it's, I find it hard to imagine that you'll be able to change that behavior to get most people being tested. And then, of course, you've, you've got those delays in getting the test, getting the test result, getting in contact with the contacts. Um, and then also when you look at the, the contacts who are being identified, uh, I think about two-thirds of the contacts that are being identified when you look at their data on the website shows that, that those are household contacts. And so, you know, having set up this massive system to isolate household contacts who should be isolating anyway by virtue of the symptoms, uh, it feels to me we've got a long way to go um, before that test and trace program has a real impact. I think it it can have an impact when the levels of COVID are much, much lower. And so that's one hope. Um, but it's really hard to see it having an impact when you've got half a million people infected. Um, what about, think, sorry, Andrew, what about backtracing? Um, you know, the idea that we have probably the majority of 80% of cases from 20% of people with COVID or something of that sort, that actually it's the super spreaders and super spreading events that we should be going, tracing back to, to identify um, and, and then do sort of focus contact tracing around those. Does that make sense? Well, I, I think it makes sense. But again, I don't think it's, A, it's, it's, it's pretty difficult to do. Um, and, um, and obviously, it, it, would ma it makes sense in particularly sort of occupational settings, I think, um, or where there's a, you know, where there's a very clear group of people that, um, that there's, there's been contact with, you know, at, at parties or, uh, or within a warehouse or, um, you know, potentially within particular pubs, etc. then it does make sense to identify those venues, go back, screen those venues, um, and um, make sure that people are isolated in that way. So I think, I think that is worth doing, but it requires a lot of public health resource. And I think, you know, I think public health has been disinvested in um, so much over the last 10, 15 years that um, it will need a lot more feet on the ground to be able to do that sort of work. Um, I'm sorry to sort of sound pessimistic about the, the test and trace program, but um, I think what's needed is really a revolution in the technology behind it. Um, and, and I think that is potentially coming. So some of these um, lateral flow, point of care, almost do-it-yourself assays that can give you a result in um, 10, 15 minutes um, could be transformational in this space, even if they are slightly less accurate than the PCR assays. The speed is actually more important than the accuracy. So, you know, I, I think come the spring, 
come next winter, perhaps, would be in a much, much better place there. Thanks. Helen? Do you think it's too late now to switch horses and go back to what we should have done, obviously, in the first place, which is uh, locally based contact tracing, locally based support for isolation, this idea that actually if, if, I mean, we had so many volunteers and retired NHS people who offered their services to kind of help with this sort of thing and whose um, offers were never taken up. There's this kind of feeling that there's a willing workforce. There's certainly an awful lot of money that could be redirected to something local. Is it, is it too late? No, I don't think it's too late. Um, I think, um, I think it's, it's, some, it's something for coming out of the circuit break, if you see what I mean, um, and, and if the levels can be brought down to that level. But I think it also needs to be a, a mixture. I don't have anything against a centralised system for doing the bits that can be done more efficiently in a centralised way. But all of this stuff like reverse contact tracing and actually getting out into communities um, is not something that you can really do over the phone and, and you need the local knowledge for. But there are bits of it um, that I think can continue as a centralised system. But, you, but we, need to, we need to really develop those models uh, of how we do it. And other countries have done that much better. You know, uh, it's going to be very interesting to see what goes on in, in Liverpool with this um, experiment of trying to trying to test a whole city, um, but I think it it is sort of that kind of ambition and scale that is probably needed um, to make testing um, hugely more available, uh, but also to make isolation as a consequence of that testing hugely more palatable. Um, so you know, financial incentives to do it making sure that certainly making sure that people aren't financially disadvantaged to do it. Um, in other countries, they've provided specific facilities where people can go and um, isolate away from their families. Uh, and so they've had a really a different order of magnitude of um, support from what we're suggesting. Thanks, Andrew. I just wondered about um, speaking of Liverpool and and cities where you know the the numbers of cases in hospital and also turning up at general practice are, are surging. I wonder, um, Matt and Helen, whether you could give us a sense of how has staff morale this this time round? Uh, people exhausted already um, after the first wave, and I know a lot of sickness and people people um, having to fill um, rotor gaps. Um, and obviously, I imagine quite a lot of fear about what's in store. So, Matt, tell us your thoughts. Yeah, the first thing to say is it's also important to remember that those who are working, especially in the NHS at the minute, are being paid. They can pay their mortgage at the end of the month. And those two things are hugely helpful. And so I don't underestimate at all people in the rest of the country where you know, the economic harms are really hitting home. So, you know, we can't forget that as, as public workers, and that's a huge good. Saying that, it's been a long, hard summer. We know it's going to be a long, hard winter. It's already a long, hard autumn. I think morale is in a tough place, but for different reasons from wave one. Wave one was all about fear is too strong a word, but anticipation and worry and what will we do? 
You know, how do we manage these patients in intensive care? How are we going to physically do this? Now I think the, the morale is about, oh my goodness, how can we do this again? And that's a different kind of feeling. And I think you add to that sickness and sickness is a huge issue. I was working this weekend at the end of half term when I shouldn't have been because colleagues are isolating, which is absolutely the right thing to do, but they feel guilty for doing so. And that's going to put more and more pressure on the system. Plus, we've got local, very local flare-ups. So there are some intensive cares in Wales and certainly in Liverpool. I think Liverpool is quoted as saying, hanging by a thread. So how do we share that burden? You know, should we be moving patients across this vast network? Should we be moving staff across this vast network? I guess one question uh, for Andrew and those who understand the epidemiology better than me, in dealing with this staff sickness, are we at a position to say, if you've had PCR-confirmed COVID infection in the past, do you absolutely still need to self-isolate as a member of staff, which will prevent perhaps services from running? You know, there's some evidence now that T-cell immunity goes on for six months. There's some evidence antibody immunity goes on. Where is that tipping point if we are a staff member in a critical resource setting, PCR positive two weeks ago, who is now self-isolating because of close contacts, for example? Where, where does that tipping point fall? That's a, a very good question. And um, I think the... The likelihood is that that person is protected for at least a few months. Um, but, at, you know, from what we know about other coronaviruses, for example, um, but, you know, looking at the evidence that that's actually true, it's fairly slim. Um, and it, it's quite difficult evidence to look at because we need to be able to distinguish between if you like, prolonged shedding of virus, which can cause people to be PCR positive for a long time, even though the virus is dead, um, and and reinfection. Um, and so obviously studies like the SIREN study within healthcare workers will be doing an, an enormous amount to look at levels of reinfection um, within healthcare workers. And, and hopefully that can provide an answer to that question relatively soon. Um, because it would make a massive difference if um, we were able to put people back into the field um, uh, earlier on and not have to continually, um, you know, con continually isolate them. Um, and earlier on, you, you know, you were talking about, you know, the concept of um, people who've, you know, whether, you, whether or not you cohort staff so that you know, people who have been infected in in the past are the ones who are treating patients who are currently infected. You know, it probably makes some sense, but the evidence is not that strong. Something we used to do in TB a lot, um, for sure. Uh, but again, these things, I think, you know, we're we're only really going to start to understand the the duration of immunity after this first wave. Um, you know, because we've seen a whole load of people be infected. Uh, and we can follow them up to to see just how protected they are through the through the next wave. Uh, so, yeah. So it's not not a very good answer. Very good answer, Helen. Tell us how things feel in general practice at the moment. 
Yeah, I mean, I think my practice is probably like many others um, in that everyone's feeling under quite a lot of stress at the moment. Um, we're short staffed. Actually, for us, that's mostly in our admin and reception areas because so many people are self-isolating. Um, and I think there's also a, a, a general sense of, of fear and foreboding, and that's both the staff and and the patients. We just had a, a fairly nightmare day yesterday where I think all the patients on our list wanted to talk to their GP ahead of lockdown. It wasn't necessarily about COVID, but there's that kind of feeling, I really want to sort this out, whatever this was in terms of a medical problem, before, before we lock down again. Um, um, we're incredibly busy. We have really gone right back to our normal um, winter busyness that we've always had. And that's before a lot of COVID has, has um, crossed our doors. Well, they're not actually coming into our surgery, but there's, there's some COVID where we are at the moment. It is still mostly younger people who are not needing a lot of our input at the moment. And we know that's going to change. But what we do have is huge amounts of anxiety, staff anxiety, and particularly um, patient anxiety. And it's really, I think one of the things that, that is the kind of, it feels like the, the last straw um, is, is kind of repeat, repeated stuff about how general practice isn't opening and general practice has been on holiday for four, for six months. And you know, we've been working our socks off um, and trying to adapt to new ways of working and trying to keep our patients safe. And it's incredibly disheartening, actually, that, that the amount of negative press coverage, because the GPs are lazy, greedy bastards, is a, is a, a very sellable trope. Just just to echo Helen's comments about that additional slap on the face in terms of that dis and misinformation, there is nothing worse than coming home after a 13-hour shift where somebody has become ill or died and your social media timeline is filled with dis and misinformation. You know, the PCR tests are all wrong. There's no COVID. You know, that's obviously clearly nonsense but i think this is the time where these social media platforms which are publishers need to also take responsibility we've heard the importance of media well most people consume media not from radio 4 or from other sources they consume it through facebook twitter instagram and so what those major platforms can do now more than ever is sort out the mists and disinformation because it has real world impacts not only on patients, but on staff, uh, on families, and on the mental health of those staff working in those areas. And so, you know, if it can be a call to anything, it's to those platforms to, to sort that out, really. It's very damaging as well, isn't it? I think anything that is putting people off seeking health care um, is, is clearly part of this problem. Um, I, I, I do, on the other hand, think that we could have done more in preparation in, in terms of separating out the, the the sort of and i know a lot of hospitals have done a lot but maybe it's not it's not in the public imagination that they have done that much to sort of separate out these pathways for people with potential covid and and other patients so that you can you know ideally have these sort of two parts of the health system running in parallel um, um and 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 not being so disrupted 
uh, by by the COVID activity. I completely agree with Matt about the influence of social media, such a big influence. And I think that's why I believe, you know, as scientists, as public health professionals, um, uh, we need to have a presence there. Um, and, and that's an extra, <laughs> extra, extra work for us, obviously, in this in these very busy times. But I think it, it can make a difference. I do believe it can make a difference in that uh, we, we try and put out, um, um, you know, some, some, some um, kind of evidence-based messaging really around, around the pandemic but but it's a big it is a big ask and I um, I've, I've, I spend time on social media and you get a lot of um, you know abuse and you know negative comments and you have I have many moments where I think why am I doing this why am I putting myself in this position but it but I do I think there's more positive coming out of it than negative. And Andrew I guess that must be the same for you putting yourself out there to speak as you are now. Yeah, I mean, I put myself out there more in the second round, partly out of frustration from, you know, I, I had more faith in the system in the first round that, you know, decisions were being made. And um, whereas I think I've learned that they haven't been being made. And so I need to be a bit more vocal in other fora um, to, um, as part of my public health role. Um, and that that can be uncomfortable, you know. Uh, you have to take it with a pinch of salt reading the you know readers comments on articles that you've written um, but I think it is important and um, the more we get a consistency of messaging the better. Nizreen can I ask about uh, the long Covid side of things you, you've been a very um, important voice in raising uh, the, the, the issue of long Covid and in terms of staff uh, risk to staff and also what we know about the, the actual incident prevalence of long COVID that may be causing, um, you know, NHS staff and others to be away from work. Uh, how, 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 what do we know about that and, and what should we be doing about it? I think um, we, we, ha we continue to shout about long COVID and, and, and actually now it's, it's gained a lot of attention. And now that we're talking about lockdown again, it's kind of going uh, hiding from the radar again because everybody's talking about you know mortality uh, from COVID and I think we always need to um, talk about morbidity and that relates to staff as well so there are various risk assessment tools being used for NHS staff to kind of classify vulnerability if you like and they are entirely based on mortality uh, prediction models um, because we don't have um, adequate data for the morbidity but I think that's really important to to keep raising that you know there's the you know many NHS staff been off uh, sick actually for months with long COVID not being able to go back to work and that the risk of uh, the disability um, uh, from, um, you know, long COVID morbidity or the damage needs to be taken into account um, in these risk assessments. Um, even though we haven't got the tools for it, but I think awareness needs to be raised um, and, um, and, and the tools need to be developed uh, urgently as well. Thank you very much, everyone. I just wondered if you could, uh, we could go around now and uh, ask each of you for your tips or plans for how you're going to get through the next month of lockdown, Matt. Well, being a technophile, I've done something controversial and bought a VR headset. So I'm going to be traveling to the jungles in Borneo. I'm going to be playing table tennis with friends across the world, all from the comfort of my living room. Fantastic. Helen? Um, two things, really. 
One is looking after myself physically, which is um, seeing as I can't do some of the other things I did, it's going to be running. So quite a lot of running, I think, as long as I can find some daylight to do it in. And the second thing is holding my friends and my family close at a distance because most of them I can't hug, but just that much more of phoning and um, WhatsApping and whatever else. Um, because I think everyone's feeling a little bit sad and a bit down, and I think we just need to, to, to stay in touch. Nizreen. Well, funnily enough, I don't think personally lockdown will make a big difference with the schools open because I've been working and teaching from home, uh, but I've got three children, <laughs> three kids at schools, and that if they continue, that would be a similar path, you know, pattern, really. So um, it's just more work and, um, and looking after the children for me. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew. Yeah, I mean, I think similarly, I've been more or less tied to my desk for the last six months, so I'm not sure how much of a difference it will make. I mean, um, one of the, you know, one of the highlights of, of lockdown is I think it does, it has allowed us to be at home a bit more, which for me has been valuable and, um, you know, do things like discover areas that you might not have discovered. We've just got a puppy, so we're looking forward to going and walking that. Um, so, yeah, trying to keep a, keep a balance between the focus on all of this horrible stuff that's going on um, and still have a bit of a life outside. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much in this difficult time uh, for those conversations and discussions. Thanks to Nizri Nalwan, Helen Salisbury, Matt Morgan and Andrew Haywood. As always, we want to cover the issues that matter to our listeners, so do let us know via social media if you have a topic you'd like us to cover or a specific question we could answer. We'll be back weekly with these Second Wave podcasts, so subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts from. I'm Fee Godley and I'll be back next week. Until then, goodbye and thanks for listening.